Hello, podcast listeners. We are in the second Sunday after the Epiphany, and today's lectionary is dealing with uh, Samuel's call and Eli's response. And we're going to look at those things as we tend to the sermon today. Our scripture reading this morning comes from the lectionary. We're looking at the Old Testament again, 1 Samuel chapter 3, verses 1 through 20. These things occurred a long time ago in history. These are a little bit more than a thousand years older than Jesus. So this gives us a sense of weight to the historical documents that we have here within the Old Testament today. I invite you to tend to this good word. Now the boy Samuel was ministering to the Lord under Eli. The word of the Lord was rare in those days. Visions were not widespread. At that time, Eli, whose eyesight had begun to grow dim so that he could not see, was lying down in his room. The lamp of God had not yet gone out, and Samuel was lying down in the temple of the Lord, where the ark of God was. Then the Lord called, Samuel, Samuel. And he said, Here I am. And ran to Eli and said, Here I am, for you called me. But he said, I did not call. Lie down again. So he went and lay down. The Lord called again, Samuel. Samuel got up and went to Eli and said, Here I am, for you called me. But he said, I did not call my son. Lie down again. Now Samuel did not yet know the Lord, and the word of the Lord had not yet been revealed to him. The Lord called to Samuel again a third time, and he got up and went to Eli and said, Here I am, for you called me. Then Eli perceived that the Lord was calling the boy. Therefore Eli said to Samuel, Go, lie down, and if he calls you, you shall say, Speak, Lord, for your servant is listening. So Samuel went and lay down in his place. Now the Lord came and stood there, calling as before, Samuel, Samuel. And Samuel said, Speak, for your servant is listening. Then the Lord said to Samuel, See, I am about to do something in Israel that will make both ears of anyone who hears it tingle. On that day I will fulfill against Eli all that I have spoken concerning his house from beginning to end. For I have told him that I am about to punish his house forever for the iniquity that he knew, because his sons were blaspheming God, and he did not restrain them. Therefore I swear to the house of Eli that the iniquity of Eli's house shall not be expiated by sacrifice or offering forever. Samuel lay there until morning. Then he opened the doors of the house of the Lord. Samuel was afraid to tell the vision to Eli. But Eli called Samuel and said, Samuel, my son? He said, Here I am. Eli said, What was it that he told you? Do not hide it from me. May God do so to you and more also, if you hide anything from me of all that he told you. So Samuel told him everything and hid nothing from him. Then he said, It is the Lord. Let him do what seems good to him. As Samuel grew up, the Lord was with him, and let none of his words fall to the ground. And all Israel, from Dan to Beersheba, knew that Samuel was a trustworthy prophet of the Lord. This is the word of God for the people of God. Thanks be to God. And let us pray. O good and gracious God, we would much rather be Samuel and hear your call upon our lives than Eli and be called to accountability. And yet, as we look at this story once again and look at this word once again, we ask that you would allow us to be open to its message, no matter what it may be. 
We pray all these things in Christ's holy name. Amen. Well, one man says to another, you've got a problem with avoiding personal accountability, to which the other man responds, yeah, and whose fault is that? We've had a difficult week and a half as a nation. The protests we saw at the Capitol erupted into violence and became tragic with the loss of life for five people, including a police officer. Some of the people involved are now being hunted down and charged with crimes. I imagine that there are people today that are likely very nervous. They're wondering, am I going to be discovered and charged? And some of them may be thinking, how did I get here? I thought I was doing the right thing. I wonder if that's how Eli thought as we look at today's scripture reading. He was an old man by the time we get to chapter 3, and I kind of feel sorry for him. He's been the one instructing Samuel in the ways of the priesthood. He has enough sense to tell Samuel that it was God who was trying to get his attention. But as bad as I feel for Eli, I may feel worse for Samuel. Can you imagine what it'd be like to be a young child barely weaned from your mother and you're sent away from your home, from your parents, and now you live here at this holy place at the temple at Shiloh with this old priest, Eli? He would become your father figure and your mentor. And God tells you to speak a word of judgment against him. And this is your first message. (laughs) Really? (laughs) Couldn't you give me an easier first pitch, God? How about one on loving each other? That usually goes off pretty well. Then we could work up to judgment and Eli's failure as a priest. But impressively, Samuel doesn't fail in this initial calling. He steps up and he declares the truth to Eli. Now, I can remember my early days of ministry when I was appointed to Drummond, Oklahoma. I was still a probationary member of the conference, and Stan Warfield, my district superintendent, asked me to be the district statistician. Now, in those days, we had these forms with carbon copies of all the year-end reports, and we had to find a typewriter and enter in the correct figures. Then, as the statistician, I would take all of these reports and I'd type them into a spreadsheet on the computer and it would tell me if there was any kind of drastic change from last year to this year. And if the change was too big, it would show up in red on the spreadsheet. Then my job, after all this data entry, was to meet with the pastors. Everyone would come in with their copy of the form, and they would sign off on them. But they would have a conversation with me first, and my job was to point out the biggest losses to these pastors in my district. Why did your worship attendance drop so drastically from last year? Do you realize you haven't had any professions of faith this year? What is going on with Sunday school attendance in your church today? Now, I was in my 20s and a probationary member. So you can imagine how this went over with some of these pastors who had been in ministry far longer than I had. And so I understand maybe a small fraction of the discomfort that Samuel would have been in. How do we hold one another accountable? How do we stress personal responsibility while staying in relationship with other people? I think our response these days is just cutting people off. It is easier somehow to tell people what they should be doing if I'm not going to ever have to see them again. But if we're honest with ourselves, this doesn't accomplish anything other than making them dig in with their behavior or position. Only now we have an enemy. Accountability is important, and I think Eli realized this. I heard someone ask, what would it be like if we didn't have any road striping? 
Parking lots wouldn't be striped, and the road would have no lines. Can you imagine what 5 o'clock traffic would look like? So the stripes keep us accountable, and they are our boundaries, or at least they're supposed to. What do you think when you see someone park like this? Does it give you a warm and fuzzy feeling and make you want to respect their vehicle? <laughs> I thought this next picture, picture was a pretty good response, although I'm not sure if they would really understand the sarcasm when they came back to their car. But as hard as it is to hold others accountable, I think it may be harder for us to hear. It's hard to let people hold us accountable. I don't remember anyone ever telling me, I sure would like for more people to keep me in line, and I need more discipline in my life. I can remember going through sermon evaluations in seminary. It was difficult to give critique on something so personal, but also difficult to receive. I don't remember the accolades from my class, but I do remember a word of critique. Reverend Shannon Davis, who is now the senior pastor at Woodward First United Methodist Church, told me not to make myself the hero in the stories I told so much. It makes it more difficult for congregants to relate to you if they place you on a pedestal, and it makes the behavior kind of unattainable. Now, this story is kind of ironic because while my original behavior wasn't great, I have hopefully learned, which once again places me as the hero. So I guess it is hard to accept critique, isn't it? Telling the truth to others when it is hard can be difficult, but it is also where we might discover the most growth if we can keep from being defensive. So as I think about Eli and Samuel, as hard as it was for Samuel to tell, I think it may have been more difficult for Eli to hear. His response is pretty mild. He doesn't rant and rave. He doesn't keep denying his own culpability. He simply says, it is the Lord. Let him do what seems good to him. To be fair, it wasn't Eli's first inclination that there was a problem with his two boys. We had seen in chapter 2 that his boys were serving as priests but took advantage of their positions. They were basically embezzling resources in that day by taking the meat from people's pots. They would have been hit with some of the original Me Too accusations of abuse to women if women could have made accusations in that day. These were women that served at the entrance to the tent of meeting. So they would have had to answer to Eli's sons. His boys took advantage of their positions of power to get whatever they wanted, and God had had enough. But Eli is able to accept these consequences. I'm not sure this is not the person we need to be focusing on in 21st century America. I would rather be the Samuel in the story, as hard as that is sometimes, the one called by God to speak. But it may be more likely that I'm actually called to be the Eli, the one being called on the carpet for my behavior. If we're going to get to where we need to be as a country, we've got to look more at Eli than Samuel right now. For a while, Tiger Woods was the greatest golfer on the planet. He won at an unbelievable rate and started at the age of 20 as a professional. In a story on Biography.com, Jordan Zakarin reminds us, the first 13 years of his career were marked by unparalleled success. Woods won 70 PGA tournaments, including 14 major championships, and spent a record amount of time being ranked as the world's number one golfer. He signed endorsement deals with some of the world's biggest brands, including the one with Nike that was the largest in pro sports history at the time. Now, that's nice work if you can get it. But then came the car crash. 
And then we started finding out about his affairs, and his star quickly lost its shine. He ended up divorced, and after he tried to come back, he wasn't the same. It's as if the guilt he felt from his behavior was affecting his game. What I respect about Tiger is that he comes to admit that he was at fault. He doesn't try to blame other people. He doesn't try to claim that he had been misrepresented or attacked. He simply took responsibility. In a 2010 Newsweek story, Tiger is quoted as saying, Last November, everything I thought I knew about myself changed abruptly, and what others perceived about me shifted too. My life was out of balance, and my priorities were out of order. I made terrible choices and repeated mistakes. I hurt people whom I loved the most. And even beyond accepting the consequences and responsibility, there is the ongoing struggle to learn from my failings. At first, I didn't want to look inward. Frankly, I was scared of what I would find, what I had become. Golf is a self-centered game in ways good and bad. So much depends on one's own abilities. But for me, that self-reliance made me think I could tackle the world by myself. It made me think that I was, if I was successful at golf, then I was invincible. Now I know that no matter how tough or strong we are, we need to rely on others. As Christians, we see that God may often call us to accountability. We rely on the community of faith to remind us of standards such as respect for ourselves and others, respecting the boundaries that are healthy for us to maintain relationships with one another. We're trying to park within the lines, as it were. As Eli responds to Samuel, it could be seen as sarcastic. You could read it that way. It is the Lord. Let him do what seems good to him. But I read it as resignation and remorse. If one cannot find remorse, we become the ultimate idolater because we never see anything wrong with our behavior. It is a God complex, but we know there is only one God. Can you imagine a marriage where you never apologized? Is a person who can't apologize a strong person, or do you see them as weaker than someone who could admit failure? If I can never admit my mistakes, I have become a narcissist, warping reality to fit my understanding because I know no remorse. I need never confess my sins because I don't think I've committed any. If we're going to move forward as a country, we must lead from a faith perspective, and this is one that calls us to accountability. We must be able to admit where we are wrong. We must be able to see things from another's perspective. We must be able to speak as Samuel when called to do so, but maybe more importantly, to listen as Eli, which, if we are honest, may come around more often. If we can do this, we will be more likely to grow in spiritual stature and maturity. And that wouldn't hurt us, would it? Amen.